uh, ambitious goals of the Green New Deal, but there is also a reality that uh, President Trump is taking us backwards. And in the U.S. Senate, unfortunately, uh, the leader there, Senator Mitch McConnell, says he, he's going to be the grim reaper for legislation that we pass in the House related to clean air and a healthy planet. That's a, that's a terrible thing to say, but we're going to work as well as we can in a bipartisan fashion. Progressive Democrats cool their criticism of Beto O'Rourke's climate plan. Presidential hopeful Jay Inslee launches a platform calling for 100% clean electricity. Plus, Congresswoman Kathy Castor discusses the first meaningful climate bill to pass the House in nearly 10 years. But will it get past Mitch the Grim Reaper McConnell? We discuss all of this and more on this week's episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media. And we have Shane Skelton here, our Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Speaking of the Pacific, there were some hard-to-miss images this week of beached whales and, and turtles trapped in fishing nets. Did you see that United Nations report, Shane, that found some 1 million of the world's 8 million plant and animal species are at risk of extinction? I did. I thought I was having a bad week, but apparently I'm doing better than like one eighth of the living mammal population. It feels like Thanos came and snapped his fingers, but like it didn't fully work and he only got one eighth. Not I don't one even half. know who Thanos is. Oh, come on. Are you the only person, literally the only person on planet Earth who has not is seen this an the Avengers? Avengers? It's oh, an yeah. Avengers thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, Brandon's no. Brandon's seen it. Come on. Brandon, what's up? We need to make Republicans extinct in 2020. Oh. <laughs> it's like really aggressive. <laughs> Wow. So, Extinct so, in Congress. You know, as we said, the White we're, House. we're working together, lots of bipartisan <laughs> Not a mass energy. murder, just to be yeah, clear. Just, just you know, out of office. This is a guy who has, has promised me he wants to work with the Republicans to solve our problems. And now I'm just not like, I'm not very sure that that's where we're headed. Well, that was Brandon Hurlputt, our Democrat, here with us as well. He's a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. So first up on today's show, an update on Beto O'Rourke's climate policy. On our last episode, we discussed the ambitious $5 trillion climate plan released by Democratic presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke, which includes the goal of getting the U.S. to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Shortly after its release, the plan was scorched by the youth climate group, the Sunrise Movement, for not being aggressive enough. Executive Director Varshney Prakash said Beto got the science wrong and that he walked back earlier commitments to move to net zero emissions by 2030, rather than the 2050 timeline he included in its policy. So it appeared as though Beto had struck out with one of the key constituencies he was trying to win over. But then things shifted. Shortly after blasting Beto's plan for not being bold enough, Sunrise tweeted, quote, We came out a bit too hot on Beto O'Rourke's climate plan, focusing just on his timeline and not enough on everything that's spot on about it. The O'Rourke campaign gave a little too. Just days after releasing his climate platform, Beto signed on to the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, where candidates agree not to take money from major fossil fuel players. And he attributed that decision to activists from the Sunrise Movement at a William & Mary College event. In a video explaining the pledge, Beto said he actually had returned money donated by fossil fuel industry executives, and he reiterated that he already doesn't take money from political action committees. So I want to put this to you first, Brandon. You know, 
What did you think of this back and forth? Is this kind of political infighting good for the Democratic Party or does it actually come at some kind of price? I have three points on this, Julia. Uh, First, activism works. This is more evidence. Um, The reason climate change is a priority for people like Beto now and the reason he changed his position on the climate, on the no fossil fuel pledge is because of the activism that's going on. So whether you agree with everything that Sunrise Movement or other climate uh, justice organizations are pushing, uh, everyone should be thankful for them that they're putting this at the top of the agenda and they're getting uh, politicians to shift their policies in a more aggressive way. Activism drives your base, Brandon. Do you think activism is going to help solve the problem or do you think it's going to help make a primary more interesting to watch? I think it's both. (laughs) Um, It's going to help to solve the problem because seven months ago, nobody was talking about climate change. You know, now we are and Republicans are talking about it as a reaction to that. So um, I think it's both. Uh, And if you want to see a good example of true organizing, I encourage people to watch the new documentary called Knock Down the House that's on Netflix. It's a great story of of organizing. So first you tell our audience that you want me to be extinct. And next you tell them that you watched a movie we plan to watch together. Now I'm feeling feeling all sorts of hurt coming into this episode, Brandon. Let's make our date. Let's make our date so you can come over. You'll be seeing it for the second time. It won't be that exciting. Maybe I won't cry this time. (laughs) (laughs) It should be embarrassing in front of you. My second point is that I think there is more agreement in the Democratic Party than people do realize. Sure, we are having some disagreements, but I think once people took a look at the Beto plan, uh, they saw a lot of things that they liked. And to me, it's another example that people need to talk to each other. And I hope that people won't make snap judgments and run to social media uh, right away because, you know, that's where you can get into trouble. The third point I wanted to make is I think it shows it's okay to admit a mistake, to evolve and to move forward. You know, Beto's change on the no fossil fuel pledge makes me respect him more. And I think Varshini showed more maturity as a 25-year-old than most of the Republican caucus on climate. They can't admit that they've made a mistake on climate denialism and we're stuck. Look, the truth is that Republicans could go a long way in acknowledging that the party's position on climate change hasn't been accurate. But what I don't think is I don't think it shows growth. And this is not a knock on Varshney or on Beto, but it doesn't show growth to respond too quickly, get in the media too quickly, get aggressive on social media and then just admit that you screwed up. What would show growth is to be deliberate. Think through the decisions you're going to make, make the decisions you want to make and then stand behind them. That's what I think, you know, really makes people stand out. I think what Beto did Um, regardless of his climate position, which I think is great. I think he really, really hurt himself. I remember when he was running for Texas Senate. He hurt himself. I think he hurt himself just because, not because of climate. Putting out the plan or by by no longer taking the fossil fuel? being fickle. I don't think it had anything to do with not getting the fossil fuel money. I don't think it has anything to do with addressing climate. I think those are probably things that are going to resonate with the base and maybe even with independent voters. But a lot of the excitement that I remember from Beto was he just said stuff you weren't supposed to say. It didn't seem like he was very poll tested. I remember when he stuck up for Colin Kaepernick. He was kind of exciting. He wasn't playing by the rules. I think it got people ginned up. And now he sort of took this weird pause. And as Chris Christie can testify, they want you when they want you. They don't want you when you decide to run, right? And so I think Beto missed his moment. And now he's kind of coming in meekly and allowing activists to determine, you know, what he's going to say and what his positions are going to be. And I don't think that's what got voters excited about him in the first place. What do you think people respect more? The type of leadership where people say, okay, I've heard you, I've thought about this, I'm going to evolve and modify my position, or somebody that's like the Republican caucus that says, uh, I'm going to stand on a counterfactual you know, uh, position uh, because I'm afraid to admit uh, that I might have been wrong. The only 
honest possible answer is both. If you want leaders, you need people who have conviction, who are doing what they do because they believe it, which means they shouldn't be easily swayed. You also need people who are open to learning. And so what I do want to see is all politicians, Republicans and Democrats, be willing to say, there's new facts in front of me. I've grown. I've learned. That's fantastic. Beto, unfortunately, seems to flip every day after a bad press story. And I don't think that shows much. So if we put this to a I don't vote. know if that's true, though. I don't think he's got a real reputation of that. This is one of this is a one prominent example. This is the first even policy he's put out so far. This is a guy who came out and said, I don't have a policy. I want to hear from voters. That's all good and fine. But like realistically, show some leadership, show some conviction. I'm not knocking Beto. I actually think he might be one of the more interesting candidates. But he was kind of hot. And now he's sort of fizzled. And the first sort of big thing he did was getting in a dispute with some activists and ending up, you know, sort of reversing his position. I don't know that that shows a lot of leadership. We had to really put a point on it that this no fossil fuel money pledge is very specific. It doesn't say anything about not accepting money from fossil fuel workers. It just says that the candidates agree to not knowingly accept contributions over $200 from PACs, political action committees, or SEC named executives of fossil fuel companies. So this is really executives and people in power that he's not taking money from and wouldn't be taking money from going forward. He already soared off of PAC money, apparently. So this is just a slight tweak on the plan, which apparently he didn't understand at the beginning. He thought it would rule out money from individuals, which is not the case. Yeah, I'm not arguing that point at all. I don't care who he takes money from. I'm talking about from sort of a posturing perspective and through a political lens. It just it makes him look weak to me. I think you determine how you're going to run your campaign. You determine what your policies are going to be. And if people push back, you have the conviction that uh, that you should have if you create these policies or announce these policies and you stand up for yourself and you show people I'm willing to learn, but I'm a leader and I'm not going to let every protest change the way that I view, you know, the, the role that I'm asking you to elect me in. So if we just put this vote on the floor of the House, that climate change is man-made and real and we need to address it. Would Republicans have this type of maturity that Varsity and, and Beto just showed to say, OK, maybe our past position uh, was not the right position on this and we're willing to look at this in a different way? I think it really depends like how such a resolution was written. So in, in your case, I think they would vote for it in the House because as we saw with some of the amendments on they HR being 9, Republicans, I think a lot of them would uh, because we saw with amendments to HR 9 um, and we can talk about this a little bit more later. But the ones that were pretty benign that said climate change is a problem. We should advance clean tech solutions. We should look at resiliency for military installations. Those all passed with Republican support. So I think Republicans have gotten to a point where where they're forced into a vote. They would rather acknowledge the reality than deny the reality, which is totally different than why wouldn't you introduce a resolution and say, my position is not valid, and I'm now adopting your position, and I just want everyone to see how right you were. I mean, that's never going to happen. H.R. 9, just for the record, is the the Paris bill introduced by Representative Kathy Castor that we'll be discussing later. It, it says that the U.S. would recommit to the Paris Climate Agreement, passed in the House, unlikely to go anywhere in the Senate. And we will get back to that in a moment. Speaking of getting back to things, there's one point I wanted to make to sort of follow up on our previous episode. We talked about how Beto O'Rourke faced pushback for voting to lift the U.S. Uh, crude oil export ban. He actually voted for it a couple of times. The first time, he was one of very few Democrats to vote for lifting the oil export ban before any renewable energy tax credits were part of the bill. So that is something that the environmentalists and, and people on the left are criticizing him for. And then, of course, he voted for it again once the renewable energy tax credits were included. So that's just one thing I wanted to, to correct and put on the record. David Turnbull at Oil Change International pointed that out. So hat tip to you, David. We want to make sure we get the facts right. 
Um, another point on Beto is that just recently he was he was asked about um, doing a debate on climate change. And uh, he did say that he would participate in that. That was another uh, question put to him by a young activist who's involved in the school strikes. And he said, I like that idea. Don't see why I wouldn't want to participate. So he, along with Bernie Sanders, Julian Castro and Andrew Yang, have expressed support for the debate. Jay Inslee, who fashions himself the climate candidate, is has made the, the climate debate a major piece of his campaign. So I think this could actually happen. We'll see. But the we'll, we'll, network would need to pick, pick it up. But that, that would be fantastic. We need to be there if that happens. I would love to be there. Maybe they can have the debate on political climate. <laughs> we need to get some yeah, more microphones. If you don't get a network, Jay Inslee, come, come to us. We'll host you. We'll even we'll, we'll order do snacks. it. I like it. <laughs> I'll get pizza. So so that is that on debate piece. The last thing I'll note is that um, the Sunrise Movement is now looking to get more uh, Democratic candidates for the 2020 election to sign on to the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, notably uh Kamala Harris has not signed on, Cory Booker has not signed on yet, and Joe Biden has not signed on yet. So the, I think we'll see some pressure ratchet up on them. So we'll shift from Beto likely to some other candidates in the coming days. Next up, Washington Governor Jay Inslee's climate plan. The 2020 Democratic candidate has been running expressly on a climate agenda. But it appears Inslee got scooped last week when Beto unveiled a climate platform several days before him. That may have been to Inslee's advantage, though, in light of the response from Sunrise. Inslee's plan, dubbed the Climate Mission Agenda, targets 100% carbon-neutral electricity by 2030 and 100% clean, renewable electricity by 2035. That means this plan would effectively put an end to using coal in the U.S. in the next 15 years. Inslee also calls for economy-wide net-zero carbon emissions as fast as possible and no later than 2045. As we learn from Beto, Sunrise Movement activists feel strongly the U.S. should get to a net zero target much earlier by 2030. That is a notable year in Inslee's plan, however. In addition to the 100% carbon neutral electricity target by 2030, he calls for 100% of new light and medium duty vehicles to be net zero emissions and 100% of new commercial and residential buildings to be zero carbon by that same year. So a big plan from the climate candidate. I guess, Shane, let's go to you first. What do you think of Inslee's plan and how it stacks up to O'Rourke's? So some of it was really interesting. Like, I don't think enough people in this space or people who care about climate talk about the impacts of vehicles and buildings. Vehicles are becoming a little bit more popular, but um, buildings, there's a lot of different ways uh, that we emit carbon. And typically we only focus on generation. So I think that's really cool. Um, you guys know how I feel and our listeners know how I feel about 100% carbon neutral electricity. It's not that I don't want it. It's just that I think it's unrealistic and I like to try to focus on things that are realistic. But what I want to give them credit for is a lot of candidates just say it. They just say, oh, I'm going to be 100% carbon neutral by pick a day and that's really sexy and I could tweet it and everyone's happy. But he actually put some stuff out there to, to try to justify how he would do it. So interesting stuff. Um, work with utilities to encourage on-bill financing of efficiency and distributed energy projects. Accelerate the evolution towards performance-based utility regulation. Increase renewable energy development on federal lands and waters. I realize the federal lands and waters is not incredibly new, but expand the Department of Energy Loan Guarantee Program. I won't go through and read this all, but this is the first time I've seen someone say, here's my goal as part of this campaign, and here are some concrete steps that I can take to get there. Where I think he got a little bit lost, and I promise I'll shut up after this, is... Um, you know, tied to job quality standards such that blah, 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 blah. I just want people to focus on the climate issue. There's several committees in Congress. There's several, you know, 
offices within an administration. There's several cabinet secretaries. Solve the climate problem first. Let's worry about the jobs guarantees and everything else. Let's do economic policy later. This problem is so big, and it's going to be so hard to solve, and it's going to be so hard to convince people across the aisle to solve it with you. Can we just focus for like five minutes on that and deal with the social and economic policy later? It's an interesting point. I think a lot of people would say that these that anytime you're doing an industrial or economic type of policy, worker conditions, worker rights should be a part of that. All the way to a jobs guarantee. Uh, I take your point. Maybe that doesn't belong in a climate plan. But as far as I know, Inslee did not include that in his climate plan. I thought on the detail, it was interesting to see the way that Inslee laid this out. And that's probably where his experience as a governor comes into play. Washington State passed and, and Inslee signed into law a 100% clean energy bill by 2045. Notably, that's one decade later than his national plan, so his state would get there after the fact. Um, so that might have been the Sunrise Movement pressure, you know, moving up the deadline. But, but does that bother you guys at all? That when he was governor and he had to do something that mattered, he laid out a path that he thought was achievable, he got people on board, and he got the job done, which is very impressive, by the way. And now he's running for a higher office. Why not have that same honesty and conviction? Why just move your deadline to something that's less achievable because you're worried about, you know, someone tweeting at you? I don't know. Brandon, what do you think? I don't know. I'm. Uh, he may be evolving as well, and and talking to people as we talked about in our last show in the last two weeks. <laughs> on like what's possible, and a bill he spent a year on. <laughs> well, things do become more possible as people do them the first time, and they figure out how to iterate. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about uh, the Jay Inslee rollout, he was on Bill Maher to roll out, you know, his plan, and he talked about the World War II mobilization. So for our listeners, you're going to hear me throughout the season <laughs> referencing this, but Jay Inslee gave the example of in 1940, we had like 76 Jeeps in this country. And then in four years later, we had 640,000. And so I think it's important as we're rolling out these plans, you know, to Shane's point, he's like, I don't think this is realistic. A lot of people see these big numbers and these aggressive plans and they think, oh, we can't do this. How, or how are we going to do this? And we have a historical precedent for doing it. And I think it's important to remind people of this great history in our country. And our country has done amazing things when we put our minds to it. And so uh, I was excited that he referenced that as part of the rollout. I thought was interesting is is the vehicle piece and the building piece. I know you'd mentioned this, Shane, but uh, that I think is going to be the next trend of if not at the national level, state level action, where we saw 100% clean energy targets uh, slowly taking hold across the country at the state level. I don't know the total number now, but something like six or so states have 100% plans, California, New Mexico, Hawaii. There are others working toward it. Um, and now zero emissions vehicles and zero emissions buildings could be that next sort of rallying cry, I think. I don't know if it'll happen at the national level, but interesting to see it and make it up to that national level discussion. To me, it seems like the easiest way to go because even if you make your building zero emissions, you still have to deal with the generation resource. It's not like the emissions just go away. But when you look at our national energy mix, you're talking about about 7% renewables if you don't count hydro, I think close to 13 or 14% if you do count hydro. That's going to take time. But changing out appliances, making your buildings more efficient, that's something people do every day. Like That's something that I think when someone says, I don't go, well, that's unachievable. You're being you know insane. That's something you could do tomorrow if you just put the money forward. And there's so many jobs that we can create with this for for people that are wondering, you know, how does this impact my daily life? Like going in and switching out and uh, to put in an electric heat pump in a building or a home 
all that old infrastructure that we could replace with newer, cleaner technologies that exist today that could be cheaper, the amount of jobs to do that installation work, it could be extraordinary for our economy. Brandon, I wanted to put something to you because uh, I saw this photo uh, bouncing around on Twitter and it shows you uh, in an image with um, Vice President Joe Biden. And and it was actually tweeted out originally by Stanford professor Mark Jacobson, who I know you know. Um, first off, I don't think I've ever seen you in a suit, so that was shocking. Um, well, if you'd known me uh, yeah. before a couple of years ago, every day I was in a suit and in high school because my mom made me go to Catholic schools, I had to wear a tie. So, well, uh, as, our, as our producer Victoria pointed out earlier, there was a little more pepper in that salt on your hair. <laughs> you looked about a decade younger. Well... All the battles we were in during the Obama administration uh, definitely changed my hair color. <laughs> nice. I think his too. Um, yes. Okay. The other point I my really want- My dry cleaning bill has gone down significantly oh. in the last couple of years, which has been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Second, the thing I really wanted to ask you about was um, this was three years ago. At that time, um, Biden said he was open to 100% clean energy for the country, according to this tweet, according to Mark Jacobson's point there. Um he has not come out and said anything on really on climate yet, Joe Biden. Um, he seems to be sort of wooing the union audience, uh, sort of middle of America, who may or may not be on board with an ambitious climate agenda. Do you remember that conversation with Biden? And do you think he will ever get on board with an ambitious climate plan like 100% clean electricity the way Inslee has and, and now Beto too? We had a great meeting with him. Uh, Mark Jacobson is a co-founder of the Solutions Project. Mark Ruffalo, the the Hulk, <laughs> was in the meeting, um, and the vice president did. A, he really listened. He really wanted to know um, how is this possible, uh, and you know, Mark walked through that because he's got these plans that show each state how they can get to 100% renewable energy. Um, whether he'll come out for it uh, in his presidential campaign, I don't know. I hope he does. 100% clean energy is very popular with the voters. And as we just discussed, there are so many jobs that can be associated with that. So here, here's a fun political question. If that tweet is to be believed, and I'll take your guys' word for it, that it is, he was talking about 100% clean before it was sexy. He might be the opposite of everyone else. He might actually reverse his position for political purposes because the unions have spoken out against the Green New Deal. He might be the one person in this race who was for it before he was required to be for it and now would be against it to find his own lane to the nomination. Do you think that makes any sense or am I sort of spinning too many wheels here? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what he does, but he is a terrific messenger for unions and part of what we need to do to build this climate movement. So excited about what the students are doing. So excited about the activism that's happening out there. But we do need to reach the type of voters that are in unions uh, and make them feel a part of this. And, and they trust Joe Biden. And I hope that he will go to them and, and show them that they have a role in this. They have a place in this where they can benefit. We can we can solve climate, but they can get a great paying job. Instead of building a pipeline to transport fossil fuels, they can go in a building and swap out old antiquated equipment for new cleaner equipment. I hear that. And I do. I hear that line a lot that, you know, this is an opportunity for people who work in unions. I mean, I actually don't know the numbers on that. Like what what is the meat around that? We should have someone on from a union to really tell us their perspective, because I don't want to just accept that as necessarily true, because this is an emerging industry, the clean energy industry. And it is noted that some of those jobs don't pay as well as fossil fuel jobs did. So that's just a reality. So I think we actually should really flesh out that conversation. So just going to put a pin in that one. Um, I think similarly on this 100% discussion, 
I think it'll be interesting to see if Biden does take the no fossil fuel money pledge, because that's something that upset unions when the Democratic National Committee did it, when they swore off um, fossil fuel corporation money. uh, And unions were the ones to push back then. uh, And the Democratic National Committee actually ended up reversing course and, and decided to take take that fossil fuel money once more. So the Biden story, I think, is going to be a really interesting one to watch. And it'll say a lot about where Democratic voters overall kind of sit today. Yeah, I think one of the misconceptions people have about the Green New Deal is it is a populist approach uh, to policy. This is not for elites or not that's not for elites. It's not an elite based uh, argument. We're talking about the fact that kids in Flint should have clean drinking water. We're talking about the fact that kids in areas where there are fossil fuel projects have asthma and we can replace those, you know, plants with something cleaner. That's not an elite argument. And so I hope that um, we can expand our audience and some of these voters that, you know, like Joe Biden can come join us because they will benefit. I think what you're saying speaks to whether or not the Green New Deal will ultimately be successful, is whether or not the the leaders and the organizers around that movement can bring on board unions and really communicate the benefits that they could see. That could be one of the key ways the Green New Deal lives or dies. Now, for our final section, we're going to talk about H.R. 9, or the Climate Action Now Act. It's a bill that blocks President Trump from making good on his vow to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, which reduces global greenhouse gas emissions. H.R. 9 passed the House of Representatives last Thursday, with every single Democrat voting for it, along with just three Republicans. The next day, we had a chance to talk with Representative Kathy Castor, the Democratic Congresswoman from Florida's 14th District, who sponsored H.R. 9 and serves as chairwoman of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. House Democrats have acknowledged that H.R. 9 has virtually no chance of passing in the Senate right now, while Republicans have control. So why make the Paris Bill a priority? Here's what Representative Castor had to say. First question to you is, you know, this is uh, nearly 10 years since a major climate bill has passed. Why was the one holding the U.S. to the climate agreement an important first step? Well, it's vitally important because uh, President Trump has uh, surprised everyone and said that he want the United States of America to leave the agreement and boy that would that would really hurt our economy and the progress that we're making to cut carbon pollution uh, here uh, plus America has been a leader and if if we do not have ambitious goals and that lets other countries like China and other others off the hook making progress uh, but it's also important very important because the clean energy economy is growing by leaps and bounds here in the U.S. Good-paying, family-sustaining, clean energy jobs, whether that's in renewable energy or in electric vehicles uh, or in energy efficiency, it's saving consumers money but providing uh, sorts of good-paying jobs, and we don't want to turn on back on that and go backwards. So... Looking at it from a political perspective, you know, many are saying that the passage of H.R. 9 with every Democrat voting for it was a real unifying statement for the Democratic Party and showing that the party really is is keen on tackling climate change. What are your thoughts on that? What do you think the message is that this sends? Well, you started off by saying this was the first meaningful climate legislation in 10 years, and that's right. So this was a very important statement for Democrats make uh, early in 
the term now that the House of Representatives is in Democratic control. This is one of our priorities. And if you think back to what's happened in the last 10 years, while we've made progress, boy, the science is in now. The administration's own fourth climate assessment says we do not have very long to act to, to cut carbon pollution before the worst impacts of climate change are felt. I mean, people are already feeling the impacts of climate personally. Uh, my own family, a year and a half ago, as that monster hurricane Irma loomed out in the off the coast of Florida, we had to pack up our belongings. Uh, my most cherished pictures and everything, I drove them to the top of a parking garage, and we uh, had to get out of town because of the Tampa Bay area is, is uh, the worst, uh, the most vulnerable to storm surge. But we were lucky because we had time to get out of the way. If you're, the wildfires are moving so quickly much more intense. Look at the floods in the heartland and important ag areas. Uh, we just don't ha have time to waste. So uh, it was a good first step, climate action now, but now we, we must move on to, to a bolder uh, climate action. Yeah, I think there's a big debate happening right now about, you know, is it more effective to take incremental targeted steps, say around energy storage or some specific technology versus a major overhaul of the economic system, a la Green New Deal, and then of course there are existing ideas like the Paris Agreement and just efforts like yours just to get the U.S. back participating in that. How do you view incremental versus bold action? What is your thinking around what the best route is to go on climate? We need bold action, uh, and I shared the uh, ambitious goals of the Green New Deal, but there is also a reality that uh, President Trump is taking us backwards, and in the U.S. Senate, unfortunately, uh, the leader there, Senator Mitch McConnell, says he, he's going to be the grim reaper for legislation that we pass in the House related to clean air and a healthy planet. That's a, that's a terrible thing to say, but we're going to work as well as we can in a bipartisan fashion, maybe through the upcoming infrastructure package, uh, definitely through the appropriations process where we can beef up our our research and development on clean energy and energy efficiency. So we need to do everything we can here in the short term and then begin to build uh, the bipartisan force ahead for more dramatic action. So I, I believe only three Republicans voted for H.R. 9, the, the Paris Climate Agreement bill that you introduced. Uh, why do you think the issue of climate change has become so partisan, especially since the entire country is now starting to see effects of it. And what are your thoughts on trying to overcome that? I know you work on the Climate Crisis Committee, and it is a bipartisan effort. What are your thoughts on bringing both parties together and a path to making that achievable? We should be able to agree on simple things like clean air, clean water, and more efficient appliances and cars that go further on a gallon of gas. But uh, unfortunately, I've seen too many of my Republican colleagues back away from those things that we agreed on. I think at the heart of it, it goes to our political system. There's so much uh, dark money uh, coming in from big oil and the fossil fuel industries. They uh, are blocking progress, and uh, so we need uh, significant campaign finance reform. That's why you saw that it Democrats, the first bill we passed was H.R. 1, that is, targets that dark money with 
greater transparency. I think that would go a long way. And boy, people better be listening to this this generation, generation climate, because they are protesting in the streets. It's, they're doing it again, again uh, Fridays every week, every day. I'm hearing from them. So state Republicans uh, are roadblocks uh, at their own peril because uh, I think this is going to be a very salient issue in elections ahead. And uh, we, you know, in the end, we have a moral obligation to our kids and our grandkids to uh, make sure they live in a livable world. And just final question, what, what else should we be on the lookout for? Are there additional hearings or are other, is there other legislation that you're looking to introduce? What should we have on our radars? Yeah, on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, we are going to be focused on solutions. And hopefully we can bring our Republican colleagues along on a number of those solutions. Uh, so watch our activity in the committee. And then we're going to have field hearings across the country to go to uh, go to businesses and communities that have been in the lead cutting carbon pollution and saving folks money on their electric bills. Maybe that will inspire the, the Congress to follow suit. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Shane, hearing that tape, what do you make of Representative Castor's remarks? I mean, I think it was what we thought it was, right? You know, she got the sense that this, she knew this was a messaging bill. Um, She talked about, you know, we should be able to agree on stuff like clean vehicles and, you know, some of the smaller ball stuff, which I think is right. I think they should be able to. So, you know, I had mentioned last week what I really wanted to see is amendment debate because we knew the bill was going to pass. We knew it wasn't going to go to the Senate. Um, you get a sense of where they were. So there were 29 amendments offered on the floor, 25 Democrat, four Republican. What I would just want to point out for our listeners are the ones that passed with Republican and Democratic support were things like, you know, statements of fact. Clean energy deployment is critical uh, to, you know, reducing climate and creating jobs. Uh, Jobs and cost considerations should always be considered while we're greening the economy. Resilience in military installations is important. Um, Climate and affordability, this is important. Climate and affordability are not mutually exclusive. There is a way to address climate and keep energy prices affordable. So that was sort of the stuff that you'd expect. One uh, amendment that did not pass was offered by a Republican. And we started to talk about this last week, but basically the amendment said the Paris Agreement is a treaty and should be treated as such and submitted to the Senate and the legislative bodies of other countries. Uh, It did not get any Democrat support. I shouldn't say that. It did not pass. It did not get a majority of Democrat support. I'm not sure if any Democrats voted for it, but it goes back. I'm still reeling from our conversation on the last podcast where I was arguing that we should have enforceable carbon reduction goals for every country in the world, including the U.S., and you were arguing that we should not. And I, I don't understand how, in this one instance, I'm the one who's taking the climate hawk position, saying everyone should be held accountable for their behavior. And and your pushback is, no, j- just us. Wait, that's a little bit different. You're saying two things from the sounds of it. One is the international component, but then there's also just ratifying the Paris Climate Agreement, which was not ultimately approved by the Senate. So that's one thing, is making the, the Paris Agreement yeah, well, legal and firm. Well, right, so once something is a legal treaty, it's enforceable. We've seen that with the Montreal Protocol, and we actually addressed the ozone issue. It worked. But when you set goals that are not enforceable and, you know, sing kumbaya about it, that doesn't get the job done. Why not just tell everyone, here's what you have to do if you want to be a member of this treaty. 
get it through your legislature, get it done and reduce your emissions. I think that's a valid point. I think the, the Obama administration just did try to do that and meet the Paris goal, but through regulatory means. And of course, that's a huge debate over whether or not uh, that was the right way to go. And obviously those were easily repealed. But, but let's say he did. Let's say he were successful in getting us to meet our goals through regulation and it wasn't thrown out in the courts. That doesn't make anyone else meet their goals. And the issue is this is not a local problem. This is a global crisis and it can't be solved by the U.S. alone. We probably agree here more than I think, um, because I maybe I wasn't clear last week. I mean, first of all, Paris was voluntary for every country, correct? Correct. So they saw it as a way to get people going, and then as there was some momentum behind this, sort of come back and make these commitments more binding, right? And so I... I would love to make it like a full binding treaty. I would love to work with Republicans to get this through the legislative process and get us to vote on it and make other countries do it as well. Because there are some Republicans, as you know, who just don't want anything to do with it. That's definitely true. But there are others who say, we're actually willing to have this conversation. We're not willing to unilaterally disarm. So if we're going to set global goals and we're going to put regulations in place to meet ours, China better do the same and India better do the same. And that was part of the lead up to signing, you know, the Paris Agreement was China made they put out with how they were going to meet some of these goals. So did India. President Obama forced them to take more aggressive action on this. There was a lot of diplomacy in the lead up to Paris to get those agreements from China and India so that we were not the only ones doing this. So why do you guys think that amendment didn't pass? Because it didn't it didn't do anything to detooth Paris. It just said this is a treaty. Let's treat it as such and submit it through the proper channels. And it went down. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, but I would love to see um, Republicans come together with Democrats in D.C. to figure out how we can engage with the world to create binding, enforceable climate commitments. Because you're right, it is a global problem. Even if the U.S., we are 15% of the global emissions. Even if we did the Green New Deal, we still wouldn't solve this problem globally, not even close. Yeah. To your point, Shane, I, I don't think we can say that international climate policy isn't getting ratified because Democrats uh, don't want it to. I think there is strong pushback on the Republican side to have such a vote and you know it probably would not pass. And so Democrats found other avenues. But to why the amendment in the House didn't pass just just recently, that probably has to do with the politics, you know, similar to Republicans taking an up or down vote on whether or not climate's real. Democrats probably don't want to have a vote saying that the previous pathway they pursued on climate, uh, the regulatory pathway, was the wrong way to go. So these are some of the political questions at play. In regards to what uh, Representative Castor said, uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate about whether this bill should be the first bill, um, you know, from a Democratic House on climate. They on have climate, passed other things, yeah. yeah. So I think I, I don't want to discount the message that this sends to the world. I think. If we're talking about the Battle of Winterfell, the world is wondering, you know, are we Cersei and going to sit on the sidelines or are we going to be in this fight? And I think uh, sending the message to the world that once we get rid of Cersei, (laughs) Trump, uh, we're going to reengage at the federal level, I think is a healthy message to send. I will hope that Representative Castor is right and that this is just a first step because if this is all that Democrats do in the House on climate uh, this session, then I think that will be a big disappointment. And I'm okay with using the select committee and other committees in Congress to build more support for things like a 100% clean energy mandate and then taking votes on that as we build that momentum. 
You mentioned this is uh, you mentioned the first bill, um, an earlier bill that House Democrats did pass was around campaign finance reform. And Representative Castor mentions that in our interview, she talks about too much dark money in politics and points to the fossil fuel industry, which is interesting, given our conversation around Beto and the no fossil fuel money pledge. Uh, Brandon, I'm curious to you, you know, are Democrats just moving away from fossil fuel money? They're sort of like, this is just not something, it's not very compelling to us. Democrats historically have not made all that much of their money from the fossil fuel industry. So do you think this is going to be an ongoing tension around whether or not to, to accept those donations? Or are Democrats swearing off of fossil fuel money altogether? And this is just a matter of time. I think we need to have a broader conversation about campaign finance reform. Generally, I'd love to talk to Shane. I don't even know where he stands on some of that. But I think the general point is that nearly all voters, whether Republican or Democrat, think there's too much money in politics and it comes from uh, powerful interests who are not representing them uh, and they feel like they're not being represented. Uh, a lot has changed since Citizens United, the Supreme Court case that basically opened the doors to unlimited money in politics. Has our politics and our and our functioning of government gotten better since that Supreme Court ruling? Absolutely not. It's gotten far worse. So I think we should have a general conversation about campaign finance. I'd love to know where Republicans like Shane are on that. As far as fossil fuel money in, in Democratic campaigns, I think voters are looking to our leaders to stand up for their values. And they're saying, if you care about changing the climate. How can you take this money? How can you be associated with it? And it's very popular with Democratic voters to, to refuse that money. And they've seen when politicians take a courageous stand like that, the amount of grassroots energy that comes into their campaign and fundraising from that has been really powerful. Also, one more thing. I think we need to build more support than many people realize, even within the Democratic caucus on some of these issues. If you're on Twitter... The climate policy debate on the Democratic side has gone from like we need a carbon tax to like a mass mobilization Green New Deal in like eight months. <laughs> so but most people are not on Twitter and uh, or, you know, engage in energy Twitter. So for the general you know, membership in Congress. Um, there is more work that we need to do. We need to continue the activism. We need to hold hearings and get them comfortable with moving further. And that just takes a lot of work. And so. I think if we were to hold a vote right now today on something super aggressive on climate, even in, in the House, I'm not sure we'd get the outcome that we need. Well, we'll have to leave it at that and move on to saying something nice. Our final section is If You Can't Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, let's go to you first. Okay, so climate polling. I think we talked about this earlier this year where, you know, Democrats cared about climate change, but, you know, it didn't rank on the top issue uh, as one of the top issues for Democrats or Republicans. So new polling uh, shows that like 96 percent of Democrats think climate change is an issue that needs to be addressed. And I think it came in in that poll as the number one issue. So it's what a I CNN think is, poll, correct? I think so. So I think, you know, the exciting part of that is this is now becoming more mainstream than it was. It makes shows like ours more interesting. It makes engaging, you know, members of Congress, uh, people on the street uh, far more um, um, informative. But I, I really do hope, going back to what Brandon talked about earlier, that you know, this can resonate in a way that is attractive to both parties, because I think, you know, can Democratic primary candidates arguing with Democratic grassroots groups doesn't move the needle for the country. It may very well move the needle in a primary and it may very well determine who ends up running in the general election. But when I'm in D.C., when I'm talking to friends and I don't mean just in politics, I just mean friends generally. 
no one is even aware this happened. No one's heard of the Sunrise Movement. No one's heard of New Consensus. Uh, no one's heard of half the Democratic candidates, and they certainly aren't up to speed on climate change. So I'm hoping that polling that the, that the general public cares will resonate and people will start to think about how to package these ideas in a way that's digestible to the average person rather than infight about, you know, are we going to be zero carbon by next year, four years from now, six years from now, 10 years from now, or 15 years from now? What am I missing that everyone else in the country is talking about when I'm stuck talking about Democratic candidates? The Avengers. <laughs> yeah. Game of Thrones. The Avengers. Oh, Game of yeah. Thrones. I did start watching that. Brandon, what do you got? I wanted to say something nice about uh, Chairman Murkowski. Uh, she introduced a bipartisan bill. Uh, this is super nerdy on the supply chain for lithium-ion batteries. We need uh, batteries for energy storage and for our electric vehicles. Now, what's going to be the winning technology on those batteries? I don't know. But what we know right now is lithium-ion works. The costs are coming down. But in order to build those batteries, we need certain rare minerals to do it. And right now, China's got most of it. And so she introduced a bill called the American Mineral Security Act, which would help uh, protect and secure the supply chain to produce these lithium-ion batteries. So super wonky, nerdy issue, but super critical. And uh, I am happy that Chairman Murkowski is taking leadership on this. That is an interesting bill, Brandon. I know it sounds wonky, but that has geopolitical implications, potentially environmental implications, because as I understand it, uh, Murkowski's bill would streamline regulation and permitting requirements for the development of mines for lithium, graphite, and other EV supply chain materials. So again, that's part of a plan to, to offset China's dominance in clean tech, which is you know a lot of people would agree with. But uh, mining is also raises a whole uh, opens a whole Pandora's box of, of other considerations. Yeah, I don't know if this is the perfect bill, but I do know that we need to think about the supply chains for these critical technologies and we don't want to be dependent on other countries for it. So the fact that Chairman Murkowski is at least starting a conversation about this or continuing the conversation, because I know she's held hearings on this, I think is is a really great thing. And what I think is interesting, and, and Green Tech Media has covered a fair fair amount, is uh, the the human rights element of of mining and making sure that these battery products are mined in a way that considers, um, you know, working conditions. You know, ironically to Shane's point, um, you know, the worker conditions are a key part of making the clean tech industry uh, sustainable overall. And that is our show for today. This is Political Climate. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate, also on Facebook and Instagram at poly underscore climate. Thank you to Victoria Simon, our producer, for making this show possible. And remember to download Political Climate wherever you like to listen. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, pretty much anywhere you like to get your podcasts. So do that and consider leaving us a review. Thanks. Bye-bye.